0: Now I'm going to do the missionary minute. It's a little bit out of sequence, but I wanted to let you know that uh, uh, we have continued with the, the commitment that we've made over the last, well, forever really, to uh, the commitment to missions across the world and in our own country. And so just this past, um, this past month, we have decided to take on two extra missionaries to uh, support. And one of them is Chris Lotti, who's working with International Students, Inc. up in Reno, working with the, the uh, International House up there. And she and her husband, David, were down here several months ago, made a presentation. And so um, we uh, met with her recently, and we're very encouraged about what's going on there and wanted to be involved not just with monthly financial support, which we are doing, but also we want to encourage all of us, each of us, to be um, involved in the ministry that's going on there in Reno. And uh, it's it's just an hour drive away. And really what they're doing is working with a lot of international students who obviously their home is around the world somewhere, somewhere uh, far from here. And so they uh, don't have opportunity always to be in the homes of Americans. And so here we are. And hey, what do you know? We're Christians. And so we get to bring people into our homes, minister th- to them in different ways. Uh, and these Often our students from places around the world that are considered closed countries. And so for us to sign up to go be missionaries in these places, for example, Iran, would be extremely difficult or, humanly speaking, impossible, and yet they're sending their students here, including to UNR, and we can minister to them. And imagine if we led an Iranian student to Christ, sent them back to Iran, they're carrying out the Great Commission in their own country. And we get to be involved in that. And so we've taken on this, the support of of uh, Chris Lottie and her husband, David, uh, with international students. And also, we've begun to uh, support Jeff and Judy Gilpin, who are with Awana International. Jeff has been down here several times. They live up in um, in Truckee. And I've met with Jeff a few times. And any of you who have been to the games, the Awana games up in Reno before, you'll, you'll, uh, uh, you would recognize him if you saw him. And... Uh, so we 've taken them on as, uh, as missionaries also supporting them, and we 're excited about what the lord 's doing in our area we 're excited about some different things that are going on and uh, so wanted to encourage you all with that so that 's our, our missionary minute this morning is is that the Lord is doing stuff He is moving, and uh, we just want to get on board with what he 's doing really and participate in what he 's doing in uh, in Northern Nevada and in Northern California and really around the world, particularly through uh, International Students Inc so we 're excited about that, and the lord's made that possible and and he 's used you to do that and so we praise the Lord for that. as we turn this morning to first Thessalonians chapter four, first Thessalonians chapter four, I want to uh, start by reading a news article that I read this week on the uh, Christian Post. Website. It's an article written by Knapp Nasworth. And it's entitled Millennial Evangelicals Need More Orthodoxy, Less Opradoxy, speakers argue. It caught my attention too. That's from April 2nd of this week, uh, just this week. So, anyway, it's talking about millennial Christians, which are younger generations of Christians. So, I don't know exactly what that means, but probably somewhere just younger than me or maybe a lot younger than me. I don't know. So, um, but I think it applies generally in our culture. They were specifically talking about that group, but you'll see as I read the article that it's going it's to really talk about us and who uh, we are and the culture around us, even the Christian culture. So I'll begin reading. Today's young evangelical Christians or millennial evangelicals are too influenced by the culture and do not practice deep thinking or a life of the mind. Several young evangelical leaders, leaders argued at a Monday panel hosted by the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Millennial evangelicals are too influ- influenced by oprodoxy rather than orthodoxy. Eric uh, Tietzel, director of the Manhattan Declaration, complained. Orthodoxy, Tietzel said, requires the cultivation of what my professors at Wheaton called the life of the mind. When considering an issue, orthodoxy lays out first principles and non-negotiable truths with the Bible as a touchstone, creating a framework through which the merits of ideas can be considered and their consequences evaluated. Opridoxy, on the other hand, allows us to respond to issues without the hard, time-consuming work of thoughtful consideration. There are no immutable principles. Instead, we start with a base set of emotions, positive and negative. Love Justice, inclusion, authenticity, and equality, these are good. Judgment, rigidity, stratification, these are bad. People and ideas are judged accordingly. Millennial evangelicals display an unbridled embrace of opridoxy, Tietzel argued, as they are feeling their way through life, not thinking. Anyone relate to that? Maybe you have a little bit of that in you, or maybe you have some folks around you who have a little of that in them. And so it's in that, with that idea in mind that I want to come to our passage today in First Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be focusing on verses 13 and 14. Now the issue here that they're discussing, that they're dealing with is grief and loss. It's a very serious issue. But Paul gives us hope in the middle of it. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Lord, we come to uh, your word this morning, uh, declaring to you that we need you and we need your instruction. We need your light to shine in our hearts and in our lives, in our relationships. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, to be motivated by your word, to be struck and cut to the heart by your word, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be exhorted, all of those things. I pray, Lord, that we would come in submission to you this morning. Ready to hear from your word. Ready to be moved by your spirit. Give us eyes to see what you have to say and ears to hear, hearts to respond. Lord, as we deal this morning with deep heart issues of grief, of loss. I pray that you would help us, Lord, to grieve in a Christian way. Help us to know what hope is. Help us to find our hope in you again and again. So we pray for your help and your blessing, and we pray that you would be honored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so just a little bit of context. We're going to look up Uh, Just at the previous paragraph, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're, again, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and starting at verse 13, but it turns out there have been a couple of chapters that have come before, right? So he's making an argument, he's writing to people, and we can learn some things by looking at the paragraph that came before, and really, I just want to take a peek at verse 9 there. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Indeed, that's what you're doing. All the brothers in Macedonia see it. Everybody knows about it. This is the reputation you have. You're very loving people. You love one another. You're doing this already. And so they have that reputation. It's a strong reputation. And, uh, and so it's, it's into that situation of this apparent love that they really have for each other, this strong affection that the believers there in, in Thessalonica have for one another that our passage comes here this morning. And so we jump down to verse 13 and start our passage here. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's going to be addressing grief. And he gives, as the means for fighting hopeless grief, truth. He gives truth as the means for fighting against hopeless grief. Now, it says... We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Now, for those of you more familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that uh, this this euphemism of sleep is often used for those who have passed away. It's, uh, It's used several times. We see it in the Gospels. We see it throughout, really, the New Testament. And so we see it among Christian writers. We also see it in the Old Testament among Jewish writers. We see it in different Jewish writings. This concept of sleep, it's a euphemism. We see it also in pagan writings, so it's a normal, uh, it's a normal euphemism that they used in their, in their day, a way of talking about death without being so painful, uh, bringing up such, such pain, but it's not really saying anything about what's going on while the person is dead, but, uh, but that's what they're talking about is, is uh, when they say falling asleep, they mean the person has died. When they say the person is asleep, they mean the person is dead. Now, probably what happened here, if, if you remember through our journey through Thessalonians, that uh, Paul was very anxious for the, the believers in Thessalonica, and so he sent Timothy to be with them. And so Timothy was there and with them, and Timothy brought back to Paul a very encouraging message about what was going on in, in Thessalonica. And so uh, um, with this encouraging message that he brought back, apparently he also brought back news that they were grieving very deeply. Apparently within their church there had been a person or some people very dear to them all, maybe central, I don't know, uh, who had passed away, who had died. And they loved this person so much. And they were deeply, sorely grieved. And it's in that context that Paul writes here in First Thessalonians, it says, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, literally is the word. We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. And so... That's the situation. Is there's this these people have passed away, and the believers they are grieving sorely. They're uh, they're in agony over this. It's it's a very deep, and touching, and uh, uh, core kind of emotional issue struggle that they're going with. The question that they were asking apparently was whether they would or would not be reunited with this person, and somehow whether this uh, this person. Who had been waiting for the Lord's return, now wouldn't see the Lord's return. They wouldn't get in on the action, so to speak. They wouldn't. They wouldn't get to be a part of it. So uh, they had that kind of grief that this person's not gonna. They're they're missing something out, missing out on something in their relationship with the Lord. Some events that are going to happening that are going to happen. They're missing out on that, and so they had that fear. They also had the fear that maybe we won't won't see them again. Maybe we won't be reunited. And so apparently it led them to. A very extreme and hopeless grief on their part. So that's the situation. Now, what's the solution? What's the solution? You know, you've heard it said that ignorance is bliss, right? Well, maybe in some context that's true. I don't know. Ignorance is bliss. You've also heard that it's heard it said that uh, what you don't know won't hurt you, right? Well, there might be certain circumstances where that's true. Generally speaking, not, not a good course to follow, right? And so, um, Paul is speaking into their situation. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know about this. I want you to hear about these truths. I want you to have the truth. See, they were dealing with... Now, this is going to strike us as a little odd, I think. They're dealing with a very core emotional issue. A very deep and serious and real grief that they're struggling with. They're extremely sad. And he comes out and says, let me tell you what's true. Let me tell you what's true. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of facts. He wants them to remember what things they know. He speaks truth to them. Now, that's interesting, and we're going to develop that idea a little bit more. But how often in in our own context, in our own situation, when we're faced with a particular emotion, do we deal with that emotion by saying, all right, this is true. This is what's true. That's what we should do. I think very often we don't. So Paul, our writer, takes up the most effective means that he knows for fighting against hopelessness and grief. And that powerful weapon that he takes up is truth. And the goal that he is aiming for is hope. He's aiming for hope. That's the goal of his instruction. He says there in the second half of verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, look at it again. Does he say, don't grieve? Does he say that you may not grieve, period? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that you may not grieve in a particular way. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The implication is that we do have hope, right? Now, what's the general perspective on death. If you think uh, around your circle, your circle of friends, particularly those who don't know the Lord, what's their view on death? How do they see it? Well, you might have some, there might be some people who don't know the Lord, have no hope, who are just scared to death of death, right? They are frightened. They do not want it to happen and they are just scared, right? And so you see this in movies all the time when some bad guy gets caught doing something. Don't kill me, don't kill me, right? That's, that's kind of the mentality that's going on here because they don't know what's going to happen next and they're, they know it's undoable and they're scared about it, right? So there can be stark terror, can be, can be one perspective on, uh, on death that, that unbelievers might have. Now there's another perspective that I think is pretty interesting and that, that's the perspective that, you know what, you can't do anything about it anyway. It's inevitable. When your number's up, your number's up. That's all there is to it. Face it like a man. You know, everybody does it. Everybody has to die at some point. Your time's up, right? Now, that might be a little bit more of a positive attitude towards it, but there's no hope in it, right? There's no hope there. It's just a resignation that this is going to happen. Yeah, we're all going to die. Yeah, we're all going to die. It's going to happen sometime. So maybe they, you know, live your life to the fullest because you're going to die anyway. He who dies with the most toys wins. But still, it's the same idea that there's no hope. We don't really have any hope. It's just going to happen to us. And so these attitudes of unbelievers range from, from terror to just resignation. But Paul wanted the Thessalonian believers to have a different attitude towards death. He didn't want either one of those. He wanted them to have a hopeful grief, a grief with hope in it. Grief with hope in it. Think about grief in your own life and how you define it. Maybe you've got some very painful, real, present, personal experience of that. Think about what that grief is. And think about, does it have hope attached to it? Does it have hope as an underpinning? I've, I've done just a few funerals in my life. And... I have two of them in my mind that that are completely different. One of them was a family member who didn't know the Lord. And that was the single hardest thing I've ever done was to do that funeral. Because by any information that I had, everything that I know about the situation, this relative rejected Christ at every turn. And so I stand up to speak to grieving people in that kind of a situation, knowing I I don't have hope in that situation. And that was the single hardest thing I've ever done. Another funeral that I did that's kind of the contrast to that was also a family member who trusted Christ at 86 and then passed away shortly thereafter. Well, then I got to give up and still do the funeral of a relative whom I loved and who had passed away, but now there was hope. There was hope. And that was a joyful situation. It was sad, and I miss her. But it was joyful because there was hope underpinning. There was truth that made identical situations very different because of the truth that was there. It made my grief hopeful. Now, so Paul's reminding them here of, of the hope that they have. He wants to revive this hope, bring this hope up in their mind. Now, I think one thing that we need to keep in mind when we talk about hope, because hope in common parlance in, in our day can, you know, I hope the my favorite team wins, right? I hope the Giants win, right? Whatever. Okay, I hope. Well, is it going to happen? Well, maybe, maybe not, right? I hope it's sunny tomorrow, Right? I hope uh, you know. I can hope all kinds of things that may or may not happen. Are they based in reality? Are are they rooted in something firm that I can count on? That's going to happen. Well, not not usually, not the way we normally use it. But in the Bible, hope means something different. Hope doesn't just mean I wish I may, I wish I might, or someday it's going to happen, or could be, it could be. Hope means a whole lot more. Hope is a confident expectation of future blessings that are going to be received from God. It's a confident expectation. I don't just run around with my fingers crossed. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, right? I can, I can, it's not just positive thinking. It's a confident expectation of what I'm going to receive from God because of, he said he was going to do it. And I can trust in his promises. That's what hope is. So when you read in your Bible and it talks about hope, that's what we're talking about. That's what's being talked about. It's God's promises that he has made to us, and he will keep them. And we, for our part, can confidently expect he's going to keep his, his promises. That's what hope is. And that's something you can count on. If you were just facing death with this other kind of hope, boy, I hope something good's on the other side, right? That's not really going to cut it, right? That doesn't give you much actual hope. That doesn't change your grief, right? Right? doesn't change your grief. But if you approach death, knowing what God's promises are, knowing what he says to us, knowing what he says he's going to do, I can trust in those. And that kind of hope will uphold you. That kind of hope will change the way you grieve. This word hope is is just mentioned a few times in Thessalonians. It's a short book, uh, but it's just mentioned a couple times there. And I, I want to point to just a couple of them. Uh, first of all, flip back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to point out how Paul started the letter, essentially. Starting uh, there in verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So these were hopeful people. And he was reminding them of their own hope that they had. Later on, flip to chapter 5. Chapter 5 of the same book. We're going to start in verse 8. Just read verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there again is hope mentioned. Paul's purpose in reminding them about about the hope that they had was to inform their grief, that it not be a hopeless grief. He wasn't saying stop grieving. He was saying you can inform your grief and you'll grieve in a different way as a result of that. He seems to expect that the truth about the death of a believer will have an effect on their emotional condition. Now look again at at, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Notice there that it mentions the helmet, uh, the, uh, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Who knows from Ephesians chapter 6 what the helmet is there? The armor of God, the full armor of God, breastplate of righteousness, all that. What's the helmet there? Salvation. And here it's a slightly different. The hope of salvation. Why would he say that? Why would he bring that? Why would he say hope? He wants to remind them of the abiding nature of this hope that they have and that it can bolster them up when their loved ones are dying, when they're going through extreme difficulty and loss in their lives. They have this hope, this hope. Now, it's the helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, the helmet goes on your head, protects, you know, relatively important stuff, right? When you're in battle, you know, you could lose a hand. That would stink, right? but you could survive. You could lose an arm. That would stink, but you could survive. You lose your head, you're probably done, right? Unless this is Star Wars and you can sew stuff back on. But in our world, in the world we live in, this is important stuff up here, right? So the helmet that is on your head, it's the part of armor when you go into battle, is protecting a very important thing. Now, the people of this day didn't see brain function and you thought, you know, thoughts come from there. and all. They didn't see it the same way we do, but they still knew if your head got cut off in battle or you took a sword through the ear, you were going to die, right? They knew that. And so they're talking about how central and important this part of the armor is in your life. And I love the way Paul says it here in First Thessalonians because he also wrote Ephesians 6 and chose not to use the word hope there, but he chose to use the word here. He's talking about hope, the hope of salvation. Yes, the salvation is real, and that's what he's talking about. But he's also focusing on our hope of it and what it can do in our lives between now and then. How central it is. If you lose your hope, you lose your hope of salvation, particularly. You lose your hope. You become weak. You become vulnerable. It's central. It's vital. So Paul's goal for these grieving believers is that they would understand the great hope that they have in Christ, that they wouldn't be drowned in soul-crushing sorrow for years, uh, that they will never see their beloved brothers and sisters in Christ again. Um, But what does ground, what what ground does he have for this confident expectation? How can he say that? How can he speak so confidently about giving them hope? How can he do that? How can he speak so confidently? Well, the grounds of his hope... There in the first half of uh, verse 14 is Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus' resurrection. Let me read you what he says. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. For letter A there, I have theology at work. Theology at work. He's dealing with grieving people. And he may weep for them. We don't know. He may want to hug them. If he was there, he may have done that. Who knows what else he would have said? But we do know what he wrote. And what he wrote was theology to them. Is that how you deal with grief? Is that how you deal with difficult situations? To think about what God's word says. How can I understand it fully? to think about theology in a situation like that. I don't think we often think that way. But that's what Paul does. He takes it back to very essential elements of the gospel. For since we believe, or if we believe, different Bibles say, that Jesus died and rose, then he will continue. So he's going back to elemental things of the gospel. You ask any six-year-old who's heard the gospel, probably, and they're probably going to tell you, Jesus died, and he rose again. Those are elemental things, right? They're very basic things. And Paul's going to build his theological argument based upon those little elemental things that your six-year-old knows. I think that's incredible. And I think it's unusual for our time. Now, when I wrote theology at work, I knew in my own mind, and probably in some of your minds, there's an objection happening. And the objection is... Ah, theology, that's tough. Or that's some ivory tower kind of thing that's out there, right? That's not really for me. That's not for my life. That's not for how I get through the day. That's not for uh, uh, what I like to read or think about or how I discipline my children or how I go about life. Theology, that's just out there. That's stuff pastors study in seminary and then, and then they try and forget for the next 40 years of ministry, right? So those objections came up in my mind, Now, I have a degree in theology and I had those same objections when I was getting that degree, okay? They weren't the only things in my head, but I had those objections. Here's here's what I want to say, though, about point number A there, theology at work. We all do theology. Everyone here does theology. I'll prove it to you. If I were to ask you What does the Bible say about anything? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about Jesus? And you were to try and answer that question, you are doing theology. When I just asked it now, and you didn't even open your mouth to speak, you were doing theology. You were thinking, well, the Bible says this and this about Jesus, and I can understand these things in different ways. You're doing theology. We all do theology. There's a difference, though. Often, when we try and object, we have this objection in our mind about theology. It's just ivory tower stuff that should happen over there and has no relevance in our lives. When we have that thought, very often, when we do theology, part of the problem is we are doing very sloppy theology. We're not doing consistent theology. We're not thinking broadly. We're not thinking in a deep way. We're not putting our minds to work to figure out what the whole Bible really says about Jesus. Now, granted, that's an enormous subject. That's an enormous subject. But what if I said, what does the Bible say about marriage? And you start thinking, wow, Jesus said a few things about that, right? The goal that we should have as Christians, when we're trying to understand these issues, whatever the issue is, think of any ethical issue, any moral issue, any aspect of life. It could be economics. Think about what does the Bible say about anything? You can sit down and think through what God has told us. He may have given us a very limited amount on certain topics or a huge wealth of information. But understanding what God says to us about these things will help us when we're living our lives. Don't believe me? I was recently asked to, uh, to go and, and speak at a, at a certain location and uh, got into a discussion with the, uh, the, I guess he's the dean of students at the school. And we got into a discussion of theology. And I know he, he didn't want to call it theology. He didn't want to talk about he didn't He didn't want to do ivory tower st- stuff because he's a practical guy and it's a practical school talking about discipleship, right? And so he wanted to kind of try, to try and avoid that, but we ended up having a theological conversation anyway. Anyway. And so in our own thinking, when you're reading the Bible, when you read a chapter, when you read a paragraph, when you read a verse, what do you do with it? Do you take it exactly out of there and you apply it directly to your life? Do you write that as your, you know, the, the banner over your head at the, for that day? Well, I hope you, I hope you take it. I hope you take it with you. But I hope you try and understand it in the context of all of Scripture, because there's a lot of truth there. I'm getting off on my soapbox here on theology. I apologize for that. When we answer questions, we're doing theology. When my seven-year-old son asks me, "Daddy, what about such and such?" I'm in a theological discussion with my son. He didn't know it. He wouldn't call it theology. He probably wouldn't even know the word. But you're doing theology with your child when you're doing that. So that is Paul's answer. Theology at work. Now, point B, I have there, if he rose. If he rose. Now, there are some versions that say that. For if Jesus died and rose. Raise your hand if you've got an if in your Bible couple of couple of folks okay in the greek it's if just saying but mine says since the esv says since now we're not going to talk a whole lot of grammar i love to talk grammar but i'm going to try and avoid it as much as i can but it's the kind of if that should make you jump out of your chair and say no it's true what do you mean if what do you mean if last sunday was was easter right was resurrection sunday and we hollered a few times, he has risen, he's risen indeed, right? Back and forth. That's the kind of thing. That's the kind of if. It's as if I were to say, well, if he's risen, and you jump up and pump your fist and say, he's risen indeed. That's the kind of response it's supposed to elicit from you. It's intended to do that. He's assuming that it's true, but it's still an if. And so that's why some versions have that. But I, I liked reading it in these other versions that say if, because it makes you get emotionally involved. What do you mean If kind of a word is if if he if he died if he rose man that stuff is true i know that stuff that is central right and that gets you engaged if we mean if what he really means is since but he's trying to egg you on a little bit that's called a first class conditional clause that's the grammar okay just so you don't think i'm making it up okay you can go type that, look it up, first-class conditional clause in Greek, and you'll, that's what you'll find. It's an assumed true, but it's trying to get you involved, trying to get you involved, okay? So that's the if. All right, so we're going to press on, we're going to bring this a little bit more uh, to a close here. Paul wants to give the church hope for their departed fellow Christians. They're grieving. They're in sorrow because their dear ones are gone. Will they ever see them again? Will that dear departed one miss out on something in the Christian life because they won't be on earth when Jesus returns? Are they missing out? Are they really going to be raised from the dead? These are the kind of questions that are going on here. Paul addresses it and wants to give them hope, and he does so by referring to basic theology, basic truths about the gospel. He He gives as a ground the hope of Jesus' resurrection. And his implication is our own resurrection, our resurrection. The second half of 14 there, he says, even so, even so. For since we believed that Jesus died and rose, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Point A I have there, Christ accomplished it. If you want to be able to count on something, count on something Christ did. He's reliable. And he's already accomplished it. He's already accomplished it. There's a little bit of a grammatical discussion there again. I'm trying to stay away from grammar, but I can't can't do it. Some some of your Bibles say through Jesus. Mine says through Jesus. Probably more of your Bibles say in Him or in Jesus. Those who sleep in Jesus, those who've fallen asleep, those who've died in Jesus or in Him. Okay. Now the reason mine reads differently than yours is it's very difficult. It's very difficult. The grammar is very difficult, and uh, scholars just disagree on it. It's not super clear. And so I thought about, well, which one's right? And I tried to figure this out. How can I keep from boring them with grammar? And so I thought about that too. You'll be happy to know. And uh, failed apparently, but, but I thought about, okay, what they're trying to emphasize when they translate it as those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. They're trying to emphasize these people were Christians. These people were believers. And, and now they've passed away. Their body's not alive anymore. They're dead. All right, so, and there's some merit grammatically for why that might be the case. What about those who translate it as through Jesus? He will bring them through Jesus. The assumption there is the work has been accomplished in Christ. Christ is the one who did the work, and he will bring with him, and because of the work that he did, the unbelievers back to life. That's what he's going, or excuse me, the believers back to life, because of what Christ did. He will bring with him believers who have fallen asleep back to life. So I think they both accomplish the same thing, whether it's through Jesus or whether it's in Him or whatever is not a big deal. But the emphasis there is that Jesus has accomplished it, and for those who are in Christ and die, there is hope. There is hope. Now what he's going to preach next week. He's going to, he's going to finish off this paragraph, I believe. And, and so what I want us to do to think about this hope that's being discussed here is to look at uh, the remainder of this paragraph. So First Thessalonians 4, verses 15, and through the end of the chapter there. Okay? For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the encouragement that he gives. That's the hope that he gives. When Christ returns, he will shout. The dead in Christ will rise, will join him, and then for those who have remained alive, they will all be joined together and they will be with him forever. And this is to be encouraging, encouragement for us. Christ accomplished it. And we get the hope. We get the hope. There is hope there for us because of what Jesus did. I want to refer just to a couple of other passages real briefly here about hope that we get because of what Christ has done. And think, this is so contrary to the typical, to I'll put it this way, to my understanding of how a person could understand God or be made right with God before I heard the truth of the gospel. I thought when I accomplished something, whatever it was, I would be good to go and be right. And then I would have some hope. When I accomplished it, when I did it, whatever it was, maybe for some people it's good works. Maybe for some people it's just the way they treat other people, or they pursue love, or I don't know what it is. When they accomplish something, whatever that something is, whatever that something is, they will have hope. And that is so contrary to the gospel. That's so contrary to the, to the message of Scripture. And it's not just in this passage. In this passage, we see that Jesus accomplishes it, and he gives us the hope because of it. It's not us accomplishing, it's him. But I want to look at a couple other passages. Isaiah 53, 5. Write this one down. I read this last week. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. 1 Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just the unjust so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit and then finally First Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to God It's the message everywhere in Scripture. You see it again and again and again. If it's up to me to accomplish, I'm lost. If it's up to you to accomplish whatever it is, you're lost. We are that fallen. But he accomplishes it. He accomplishes salvation for us. He accomplishes future salvation, which is the resurrection He accomplishes it, and we get the hope. That's the gospel, and that's the point of the Lord's Supper that we're going to move to today. First, before we get to that, I want to get to a couple of points of takeaway or points of application. Point number one is hope in the face of grief and loss. Hope in the face of grief and loss. Now, some of you in here know grief and loss in a way that I have no clue in a way I cannot relate to. Into that grief, speak truth. Speak truth. Know what the Bible says. Know what the Bible says about there being redemption. Those who are in Christ will be with him. They will return with him. They will be with him forever. That's the promise of the gospel. So into that deep grief, speak truth. Speak speak truth. Now, I know that's not easy, and it will not take away grief. Loss is loss. And broken relationship, loss of relationship because of death or some other catastrophe, hurts. But speak truth into it. Don't just float through the misery and the pain. Someday you'll get out of it. No, speak truth into it. Number two, the role of truth in our lives, not just for grief, but in every area. You want to know you have some questions, something you want to resolve. You want to know how to be a better dad? Do some theology. Look at the Word and see what it says. Understand it. You're dealing with some other emotional, out-of-control situation in your life? The Word of God speaks to it. Truth needs to have a much larger role in our lives. Not all of us are these millennial Christians that I read about in the very beginning. Probably most of us aren't. But we have that tendency. We have that going on inside of us that we can shut off our brains somehow and respond to what I'm feeling or respond to what my buddy says or what I'm hearing or what I'm seeing in the world and try and live life that way, reacting through life. God has spoken, He gives us truth. Let's look into it. Let's find what it says for us. And finally we come to the Lord's Supper. If the men who are, who are serving communion will come forward, I want to uh, meditate a little bit on, on the truths that are here and what they will have to do with our lives. These, these truths of hope that we've been talking about in the Thessalonians' lives that they had and that we have are summarized right here in the, in the Lord's Supper. And when we celebrate communion together, what we're doing is reminding ourselves and reminding one another of the truth that's here. We have here some, some bread, crackers we use. And we have fruit of the vine, we use juice, grape juice. And these things are a picture to remind us of Christ's own sacrifice for us. The sacrifice that he paid. This is a reminder of truth. This is not just a ritual we do every month or every now and again or whatever. This is a reminder of truth. Now, as we do this, the uh, scripture tells us to be pretty serious about this, to take this very seriously. As we're approaching the elements of communion, Scripture tells, it, tells us that there's a there's a way to take it in an unworthy manner. That is uh, not a good thing. Actually, during during the day when Paul was writing, there were people who actually died because of the way they took communion. Now, they were using it to get drunk and all kinds of stuff. But they were they were doing it in an unworthy manner. So what I want us to do is think about our own lives. Think about our own our own hearts, and our own situations. This is a picture of what Christ has done for us. The reason he did this for us is because we are unworthy and unable ourselves to accomplish it. But at the same time, he made a way possible for us to have a relationship with God because of his sacrifice on the cross. He made that possible. We talked about resurrection. We talked about Spiritual life and all of that that's involved in that last week. He makes that possible. He offers that to us because of what we celebrate here at communion. So I want us to think about our own lives. Chris talked about examining our hearts. And that's a biblical concept. That's a biblical idea. I'd like us to spend just a few moments in meditation and in silent prayer just uh, confessing any unconfessed sin to the Lord just talking to him about thanking him for what he's done and examining my own life in light of that. So let's go ahead and spend just a few moments in prayer.